This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of my presentation is, What is Intellect? In my correspondence with Father Leg leading up to this workshop, Father emphasized that he wanted me to speak about St. Thomas's account of intellect. And when I say emphasized, I mean that Father wrote in three separate emails, quote, remember that you're giving Thomas's answer, close quote. <laughs> My response to the third email, of course, was to immediately set to work penning an introduction to Martin Buber's account of intellect. <laughs> Once I got that out of my system, it occurred to me that examining the meaning of Father's injunction, give a Thomistic account, wouldn't be such a bad thing to do in the introduction to a talk on St. Thomas's account of intellect. After all, it's more likely that I'll be able to succeed in actually producing a Thomistic account and that you'll be able to appreciate its Thomistic character if we begin by considering what it, make, what it is to make an, a Thomistic account. So, what are the features of a specifically Thomistic account? I'm going to boldly assert First, that some accounts are not Thomistic at all. And second, that some Thomistic accounts are more Thomistic than others. I don't think it's a transcendental, though. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so, an account is superficially Thomistic if it merely professes the truth of a conclusion that's attributed to St. Thomas. Thomas. So, an account would be Thomistic in this sense, if it simply assented to the conclusion of Prima Par's question 14, article 11, that God knows singular cicadas. The text doesn't actually say cicada, but I think it's implied. <laughs> when I was writing this talk, there was a, you know, a plague in DC in which cicadas were all over the place. So. Uh, secondly, an account is more substantially Thomistic. If in addition to professing the truth of one of Thomas's conclusions, it does so for the same reasons that Thomas held the conclusions to be true. An account would be Thomistic in this sense if the truth of the conclusion, God knows singular cicadas, is presented as flowing from the principle, God's knowledge is the cause of each thing's existence. To this reasoning, we might say, why, oh God, do you know so many cicadas? <laughs> and lastly, an account is robustly Thomistic if it arrives at the reasons that support a given conclusion because it asks the same question that Thomas asked. By asking the same question, I mean not simply that we know the meaning of the terms God and knows this cicada, and that we entertain how the meanings might or might not relate, God knows, God doesn't know, but rather that we entertain the possible relations until we're really bothered by one of them, until we see its connection to something we love. If God doesn't know the singular cicada, he doesn't know the singular me or any of my singular acts. Before attempting to give a robustly Thomistic response to the question, what is intellect? I'd like to note that according to this criteria that I've given, most of Thomas's own texts qualify as robustly Thomistic. <laughs> what I mean is this. 
Thomas begins nearly all of his writings with objections to the conclusion that he'll eventually defend. The effect of entertaining these objections first, where they appear in the text, is to allow us to appreciate the conclusion not only as following from sound reasoning, but also as excluding undesirable alternatives. That is to say, as resolving a tension latent in the question. So, if the present account of intellect is to be robustly Thomistic, we ought to begin by considering some objections to Thomas's answer to the question, what is intellect? But here, we run into a difficulty. Although the number of texts in which Thomas discusses intellect are legion, in none of these does he ask simply and explicitly, what is intellect? Or its equivalent in the yes or no format. Why not? And in the absence of Thomas's explicit asking of this question, where ought we to look for his response? The answer to the first question, I think, is straightforward. Thomas doesn't explicitly ask, what is intellect? Because no one in his day was making bothersome claims about what intellect most fundamentally is. Correlatively, Thomas does explicitly entertain less fundamental questions about intellect, how it's related to the body, to the senses, to images, because lots of bothersome answers to those sorts of questions were in circulation in his day. Without going into historical details, in the 13th century, Latin translations of the Greek texts of Aristotle and the Arabic commentaries of Avicenna and Averroes were just becoming available. As Thomas studied these texts, he took the claims of their authors as seriously as though each thinker were sitting opposite, opposite him at his desk, arguing with him alone. What I'm suggesting is that we ought to approach Thomas's comments about intellect less like a meticulously arranged treatise than like a written version of a funny game of 20 questions. The game is funny not only because Thomas is fielding questions from interlocutors long dead and far away, and because the privilege of asking a question appears to be limited ordinarily to people whose names begin with A, <laughs> but because the goal of the game isn't just to guess the name of the item that Thomas has in mind, intellect, pun intended, but to discern what this item is like, that is, how intellect differs from and is related to other things. If we approach Thomas's comments about intellect in this way, we already have a response to the second question that I mentioned above. Namely, in order to find Thomas's answer to what is intellect, we needn't look elsewhere than his game of 20 questions. This is to say, it's by telling us whether intellect is bigger than a bread box or whether intellect is an animal, vegetable, or mineral, that is, by telling us how intellect is related to other things, that Thomas tells us, in a way, what intellect is. So, the remainder of this presentation, I'll walk through several questions that Thomas's interlocutors raise about intellect. Each question will propose a specific way that intellect appears to be related to a particular subject, power, activity, or object, but isn't. 
So I'll apologize to those of you now who like the thrill of guessing whether Thomas's answer to uh, his question is yes or no. All of the answers are going to be no, except for the first one. Three final disclaimers and warnings. First, I'm violating an unwritten rule of public speaking in not limiting my headings to more than my fingers, or less than my fingers. So for those of you who um, like to count as we go, you're gonna have to take off your shoes. Um, <laughs> we will end Thomas's game of 20 questions, a little short, at 16. Even these 16 questions won't be a complete account, so I'm banking on there being at least four questions in the Q&A session that will identify the gaps. Second disclaimer, there will certainly be overlap between this talk, which focuses on intellect as a power for the activity of intellection, and the other talks in this conference that focus on the activity of intellection in its own right. This overlap is unavoidable, since it's impossible to understand a power without understanding the activity for which that thing is a power. You can only marvel at Simone Biles' power to perform a Yurchenko double pike vault if you have some notion of what doing a Yurchenko double pike vault is. And third, each of the questions and this list of 16 as a whole is a loose paraphrase rather than a close reading of any of Thomas's works. Hopefully, the looseness will be my only contribution to Thomas's responses. Needless to say, Thomas's full account is not only more exhaustive and precise, but also more concise than mine. Question one. Is universal awareness the proper, the proper activity of intellect? As you were warned, Thomas's answer to this question, and this question alone, is yes. I chose not to rework the question to fit the pattern of the others, because I wanted to emphasize that this is the one plot of common ground, the one claim whose truth both Thomas and his interlocutors admit. The activity of intellect is universal awareness. It's important to begin with this claim because it serves, more or less, as the foundation for all of Thomas's more controversial claims about intellect. The claim that intellect's activity is universal awareness is uncontroversial because it's humble. It doesn't try to do anything more than describe how our experience of intellection differs from our experience of sensation. In particular, it doesn't get into the business of trying to explain where or by what means or under what conditions either a sensation or intellection comes about. Before we move on to the questions that do get into the business of explanation, I should say something about what universal awareness is. I'll leave the task of explaining what awareness is for another talk. For the present purpose, it's enough to say that Thomas regarded both sensation and intellection as producing, and in fact as being, a kind of awareness. To sense the cicada and to intellect the cicada just is to be aware of the cicada in some manner. The two activities, and thus the two powers, differ in that sensory awareness extends only as far as the expression of order or of unity 
and the material thing right in front of me, while intellectual awareness extends to any order or unity whatsoever. In comparison to the awareness of the senses, then, intellectual awareness is unrestricted, that is to say, universal in two ways. First, intellectual awareness isn't limited to the kind of order that expresses itself in matter. By means of intellect, I can be aware not only of copper color, crunchy, and chirpy, but also the fact that this copper color, crunchy, chirpy thing is called cicada, that covered in chocolate is not an essential feature of cicadas, and that the definition of cicada is both similar to and yet different from the cicada flying at my face. Second, intellectual awareness isn't limited to any particular instance of order. By means of intellect, I can be aware not only of cicadas and words and definitions, but of anything that hangs together as a unity. The power of intellect just is an openness to order insofar as it is order, to unities insofar as they're unified, or to form insofar as it is form. Question two, is intellect a body? We'll begin this question and all the remaining ones by giving voice to why someone might answer yes. By someone, I don't mean any of us in this room or our contemporaries. I mean rather the someones with whose arguments Thomas was familiar. The ancient physicists were the someones who famously argued that intellect was bodily slash corporeal slash material. And all these mean basically the same thing. Very roughly, they argued, something can be known only by what shares its nature. And this principle is usually summarized, like is known by like. Second, we know bodily things. Therefore, intellect must be bodily. Thomas's response to this argument is to turn the principle, like is known by like, back on his interlocutors. He argues that the principle, like is known by like, should lead us to the, conclude, the conclusion that intellect is immaterial, not material. And here's why. Even though the form cicada exists in the cicada in a bodily mode, when the form cicada comes to exist in the intellect, it does so in an immaterial mode. So even if what we're aware of is a material thing, our awareness isn't itself material. And Thomas sometimes expresses this uh, with the phrase, that which is received is received in the mode of the receiver. Question three. Is intellect entirely separate from the body? The position articulated in this question seems to arise from the response that Thomas gave just now, or at least to an oversimplification of it. If the intellect weren't separate from the body, but in the body, then it would have to be in the body as another body. But as we just heard, intellect isn't a body, so intellect must be separate from the body. And incidentally, the primary reason why this conclusion or this position gained traction in Thomas Day wasn't because of anything that Thomas argued, but because Aristotle, in the incredibly cryptic text of De Anima 3.5, says that intellect is separate. We'll get to Thomas's explanation of that text in a few minutes, but for now, we'll stick to his reply to the claim that intellect is entirely separate from the body. 
Thomas responds to this claim by pointing to the consequences that would follow if each man's intellect were entirely separate from his body. If Socrates' intellect weren't somehow in Socrates' body, then the awareness produced by Socrates' intellect wouldn't be in Socrates. But then Socrates himself wouldn't understand. The awareness wouldn't be his. But this clearly conflicts with our experience. Thomas is insisting here that intellect must be in the body, but not as a body. This is another way, as far as I'm concerned, of saying that intellect must be a power and not a mere possibility. Powers are in their subjects as a source from which activities emerge. But these lovely prepositions, in and from, don't apply to mere possibilities. Question four. Is the intellect in the body as a captain is in a ship? It's easy to sympathize with this suggestion, not only because it's attributed to Plato, but because it's clearly trying to escape the two difficulties just mentioned. Perhaps the intellect can be in the body without being a body if it's in the body as an immaterial mover. Thomas isn't as horrified by this account as by the previous ones, but he also doesn't give it a pass. The problem with saying that intellect is in the body as a captain is in his ship is that my intellect definitely isn't related to my body in a merely accidental manner, but a captain is related to his ship only accidentally. He can disembark and both he and the ship still exist. In other words, this is only a light version of the earlier separate existence position. It's a form of dualism. If dualism doesn't adequately account for the unity of our experience, and Thomas doesn't believe that it does, then we must say that my intellect, or my intellectual soul, is related to my body as a principle of my body's activity. Intellectual soul, as form, must be joined to my body as matter, with one active being. Question five. Is the intellect merely the principle of the activity of the body? This position is almost identical to what Thomas just asserted. Almost. Perhaps Thomas meant to say that intellect is merely the principle of the body's activity. After all, the intellect, if the intellect were more than the principle of the body's activity, then it would be, in some manner, separate from the body, capable of existing apart from the body. Thomas replies by affirming and clarifying his earlier assertion. The intellectual soul is the principle of the body's activity, but it's not merely a principle, and the body is not a principle of the intellect's activity. To put it another way, the intellect's activity can neither be nor completely be caused by the activity of the body or a bodily organ such as the brain. If it were, if intellect didn't have an activity independent of the body, then our capacity for universal awareness would be limited. The intellect as the activity of an organ would be like an eye looking through rose-colored glasses. Its vision would be limited by the particular character of the organ, that is to say, of the glasses. But by experience, we know that our capacity for universal awareness isn't limited. Question six. Is the intellectual soul then separate in existence from the sensible soul, 
This position appears to be implied by Thomas's last remark. If intellection isn't the activity of bodily organ, and yet if sensation is the activity of a bodily organ, then it seems that the intellectual power and the sensible power, which Aristotle refers to both as souls and parts of soul, are separate. Although this question might appear to be merely a squabble over terminology, what's at stake is the unity of the human being. Thomas therefore insists that although in man there can be many powers, many principles of activity, there can only be one substantial form by which the whole human being exists as a unity. Our three powers, intellectual, sensitive, and vegetative, aren't just stacked next to each other or contained within some fourth thing, the soul. Rather, the human soul just is the lower powers united to the intellectual power as matter is united to form. We call the human soul an intellectual soul only because the intellectual power is the power for the sake of which the other powers exist. Question seven, is intellect separate from the existence from the senses in its operation? This question follows from a clumsy but well-intended interpretation of the previous ones. You should be noticing a pattern here. Thomas responds by saying that although the intellect doesn't depend on the senses for its existence, it does depend on them, or rather on their operation for its operation. The operation of the intellect consists in being aware of the intelligible forms of things in phantasms. Insofar as phantasms are present in the imagination, thanks to the operation of the senses, the operation of the intellect, intellectual awareness, depends on the operation of the senses in this life at least. Incidentally, this is why we get tired when we think really hard or really long. Not because the intellect itself uses a bodily organ, but because the senses, which supply the phantasms in which we think the forms of things, do. There's a market here for intellectual Gatorade. Question eight. Is intellect merely a passive power? doing nothing more than suffering the forms of things that are somehow in phantasms? Thomas attributes this position, or at least its precursor, to Plato. As far as Thomas is concerned, the belief that the intellect is merely passive in the face of its objects follows from a failure to see how intellect and its relation to its object differs from the senses and their relation to their objects. The senses are passive toward their objects, the sensible forms of things, because the sensible forms of things already exist in nature as actually sensible. The power of sight doesn't need to do anything to the cicada to see its copper color. The intellect, however, can't be merely passive toward its objects, the intelligible forms of things existing in phantasms, because the forms of things don't exist in phantasms as actually intelligible. They're only potentially intelligible until they are separated from their material conditions. The intellect then must be an active power. It must be capable of immaterializing forms in phantasms, rendering them actually intelligible. Aristotle says in the De Anima 3.5 that this active intellectual power is like light. Just as light makes what is potentially seen actually seen, so does the intellect make what is potentially known actually known. The intellect then 
is like an eye that possesses its own light to illuminate its objects. And if there's a graphic artist in the audience, I think you have your commission. Question nine. Is the intellect an entirely active power, doing nothing more than making the forms of phantasms, forms in phantasms, actually intelligible? None of Thomas's historical interlocutors held this exact position, but some of them, Averroes in particular and his Latin followers, were inclined to downplay the receptive capacity of intellect as a power of the soul. Against this position, Thomas insists that the intellect as a power is both active and passive, although not in the same respect. It's active insofar as it makes the forms of things in phantasms actually intelligible. It's receptive insofar as it becomes these actually intelligible forms. If intellect lacked the capacity to become the forms of things, no actually thinking, no actual thinking would ever occur, even if the intellect in its active capacity was forever lighting up forms. Intellect in its capacity to receive and to become the forms of things is called by various names. Thomas calls it the possible intellect, presumably because it's possible for any form to be received. Averroes calls it the material intellect because it's like matter, while the intelligible species, instrumentally active thanks to agent intellect, is like form. Aristotle likens it to a slate upon which anything might be written and also to a place in which any form might take up residence. Question 10. Is the possible intellect corruptible? This position seems to follow from Aristotle's description of the possible intellect as capable of becoming the forms of all things. In order to become the form of another thing, it seems necessary for the possible intellect either to be or to have some matter in which form can take up residence. But anything with matter is capable of corruption. Thomas responds by repeating and by slightly expanding upon Aristotle's description. The possible intellect doesn't need to be matter in order to become the forms of other things, because what it is, is nothing other than a capacity to be informed by the forms of other things as other things. The only respect in which the possible intellect is kind of involved with matter is insofar as it depends on the activity of the sense organs in order to actually become the forms of things. Recall that the possible intellect actually becomes the forms of things under the combined agency of the active intellect and of the intelligible forms in phantasms. The active intellect isn't material, of course, but phantasms are. A phantasm is simply the continuation of a motion begun in a sense organ. So the possible intellect's actualization, its operation, depends upon the sense organs, which are corruptible. But this still doesn't make the intellect corruptible, since the intellect doesn't cease to exist simply because it isn't being acted upon. Question 11. Are the active intellect and the possible intellect two separate powers? This position can't exactly be attributed to Aristotle, but he certainly can be blamed for inspiring it. In the same text to which I've been alluding, the Anima 3.5, Aristotle says that in the soul, there is an intellect that makes all things and an intellect that becomes all things. Kind of sounds like they're two intellects. 
What does Thomas make of this? As far as I can tell, Thomas wouldn't really care whether we use the language of intellect or aspect, or even whether we say that there are two intellects or one, as long as we affirm that the intellect is a complex unity. This means affirming two things. First, that the activity of making immaterial the intelligible species in the phantasm differs from the activity of receiving or becoming the form in the now immaterial intelligible species. Second, it means affirming that neither of these activities ever occurs without the other or before the other. It isn't as though the active intellect does something first and then stops and watches while the possible intellect does or suffers its thing. The activity of thinking is not a mechanism whose unity is only visible in the final product. It's unified, Thomas and Aristotle would say, in the way that art is unified with its material. Neither the artist's capacity to make a clay cicada, nor the clay's capacity to become a cicada is actualized apart from the other. Presumably, the unity of the intellectual power cannot be less than the unity of the intellectual activity. Question 12. Is the active intellect ever inactive? This position seems to follow from interpreting our experience of thinking through the lens of what we just heard. Actual thinking occurs thanks to the unified activity of the agent and possible intellects. But by experience, especially the experience of teaching or taking a class immediately after lunch, we know that we're not always thinking. At least one possible explanation of this experience is that the, the agent intellect has gone inactive. It's stopped shining, so to speak. Thomas acknowledges that there are times when we aren't actually thinking, but he denies that this is due to the activity of the agent intellect. It is always working. Actual, in, actual thinking stops, not because the active intellect itself is inactive, but because the phantasms upon which the active intellect works must be presented by the imagination. And since the imagination makes use of bodily organs, it is prone to exhaustion, especially after lunch. Question 13. Does the activity of reasoning come from a power other than the power of intellect? The appeal of this position, that there is a power for reasoning and a power, a separate power for understanding, is that it makes sense of Thomas's confusing use of Latin terminology. When it comes to describing the activities of thinking, Thomas gives us two names. There's the activity of ratio, by which we discursively think things together or apart, and there's the activity of intellectus, by which we simply rest with one thing. When it comes to describing the power that correlates with the activity of thinking, though, Thomas gives us only one name, intellectus. This seems to suggest that the power of intellect is only a power for intuiting or understanding, and that we need another power for discursive thinking, for reasoning. Thomas denies this. We don't need two powers, one for each kind of thinking. Rather, one and the same power, involving the unified contributions of both agent and possible intellect, give rise to the, both the kind of thinking that's like rest and the kind of thinking that's like motion. Here's a dangerously oversimplified version of Thomas's explanation. Only one power of thinking is needed for both activities of thinking, 
because the ultimate target of these two activities is only one, being. The object of intellectus is being as simple, while the object of ratio is being as complex. And as a brief aside, I think the question of the unity of the power of intellect is incredibly important. The possibility of attaining wisdom, that is, of knowing all things as they are unified, demands that the knower himself be unified. 14. Is the cogitative power a third aspect of intellect? There are two reasons why we might think this. The first is that Averroes calls the cogitative power the passive intellect. The second is that the activity of the cogitative power looks a lot like the activity of judging. In spite of these similarities, Thomas denies that the cogitative power is an intellectual power. For one, the cogitative power is the power of an organ. Thomas thinks it is the cell in the middle of the brain. What's more, the act of the cogitative power is to regard this particular thing right here and now as either harmful or beneficial. This act of regarding, which modifies a phantasm, isn't intellectual because it doesn't yield any awareness of intelligible form. 15. Is intellectual memory a power separate from intellect? Memory and intellect seem to be different because there is an experiential difference between initially becoming aware of something and returning to this awareness. While Thomas acknowledges the difference between the activity of initial understanding and the activity of remembering, he denies that there's a difference between the power of intellect and the power of intellectual memory. But he's careful to specify what he means by each of these phrases. First, the aspect of intellect that we can identify with memory is the possible intellect, not the agent intellect. Only the power by which we become the forms of things is a power both to receive and to retain these forms. Second, what we retain in the possible intellect aren't the sensible particularities of things, but their intelligible order. Another power, sense memory, gets involved with intellectual memory when I remember, say, the fact that a cicada flew at my face 13 years ago, or what that was like. 20, or 16. <laughs> Depending on whether your sensory and intellectual memories were working properly, right? <laughs> Is intellect ultimately for knowing the essence of a material singular? This question is interesting because it concerns the intellect's final cause, what the intellect is for, as opposed to its material, formal, or efficient cause. It's also interesting because Thomas himself appears in several texts to give an argument, or at least an ex explanation, for the claim that, on my reading, he eventually rejects. In several texts, he says, the proper object of human intellection is the essence of a material singular thing. This is fitting because the intellect itself is a form in matter. So far, so good. But in one text, Thomas appears to distinguish between the act that is proper to the intellect and the act that is perfective of it. The act that perfects intellect is the act by which intellect understands itself. This is significant because it suggests that intellect ultimately isn't simply for knowing lots and lots of essences of material composites. Intellect is for wisdom. 
Intellect begins by making contact with essences, that is to say, with unities in matter. But it reaches its end by knowing how these unities are themselves unified into a bigger whole. We know how things are unified when we know the cause of unity. And one of those causes, although certainly not the greatest one, is the human intellect. I'd like to conclude by making a few additions to my opening remarks regarding what makes an account Thomistic. What I said earlier describes Thomism as though it were a static thing, as though the perfection of Thomism means no more and no less than appropriating to ourselves the exact questions and arguments that Thomas professed in his lifetime. Though this would be an impressive achievement, I don't think it's ultimately what we should either aim at or admire. The kind of Thomas that I recommend each of us try to become is more dynamic than I suggested earlier. By a dynamic Thomist, I mean someone who strives to imitate not merely Thomas's thoughts, but his way of thinking. There's one particular aspect of Thomas's way of thinking that I'd like to highlight and that I attempted to highlight in this presentation, although in a sillier fashion than I find it in Thomas. I'm referring to Thomas's inclination to ask questions not primarily because they're required for logical completeness, but because someone is really asking them. I'm aware that this sounds like a backward way of characterizing Thomas's writing. Most of us, when we're first exposed to a summa question, don't say, he read my mind, but rather, what kind of a mind sees all these distinctions? I'm not denying that Thomas possessed an astounding capacity for insight and order. What I'm denying is that Thomas was concerned about order for the sake of order alone. I'm convinced that he put his capacity for insight and order at the service of the particular questions presented to him in his day. This is important for us to note because if we wish to imitate Thomas's way of thinking and not merely his thoughts, we'll need to take account of the differences between the questions that Thomas faced in his day and the questions we face in ours. Or perhaps it would be better to say the differences between Thomas's interlocutors and ours. I'll mention just two differences. First, Thomas's interlocutors weren't primarily skeptics. Even if we'd really gone all the way to 20 questions, or even to 50, we still wouldn't have found a question about whether intellect as such exists. Thomas's interlocutors were concerned about how intellect exists and not whether it does. Second difference, Thomas's interlocutors believed in the value of precise reasoning and of unremitting, honest questioning. In contrast, some of our contemporaries appear to lack the desire or the will even to be our interlocutors. That is, to care enough about something to at least try to speak truthfully about it, to notice when our speech conflicts with theirs, and to trust us enough to confront us with the difference. Thank you.